It's Friday, July 9th, 2021. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is the Pennsylvania Legacies Podcast. My name's Josh Rollerson. As Pennsylvania gears up for the clean energy transition, the U.S. is putting pressure on solar energy manufacturers abroad to combat the use of forced labor in China's Xinjiang region. An import ban announced last month means a major supplier of silicon-based materials used in solar panels is now out of the U.S. market, along with any manufacturer that uses its products. The Solar Energy Industries Association, which represents U.S. solar companies, applauded the action. For years, they've been pushing for greater transparency in the solar supply chain and urging manufacturers to stop doing business in Xinjiang. We're just saying there are systemic issues there that need to be addressed. Um, Until those are addressed, we don't want anything to do with that region. SIA has developed a protocol that lets companies document how their raw materials are sourced, thereby reassuring their customers that everything's on the level, while also avoiding potential customs issues at the border. On this episode, we'll learn how the program is helping the solar industry navigate the turbulent waters of global trade. That's coming up in a minute, right after news with Lily Jones. A new report highlights how the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI, can create opportunities for coal plant communities in Pennsylvania. The report by the Ohio River Valley Institute draws on case studies from New York and Massachusetts, where REGI funds have been used to support local economies, as well as from Colorado and Washington, non-REGI states with model energy transition programs. Joe Cullen, the report's principal author, said that while REGI funds can't fix every issue, they were important for the local economic recovery in each case study. REGI funding really did play a critical role at all the sites, although the scenarios played out differently, the REGI funding was deployed in uh, different ways. Sean O'Leary, senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute, said that REGI provides an opportunity to create a safety net for communities which wasn't available during past industry collapses. We know what it looks like when industries are allowed to evaporate in communities that depend on them. And this is an opportunity to avoid that fate again and do something about it. And I, I sincerely hope that state legislators in Pennsylvania will take advantage of that opportunity. Among other plans for REGI funds in Pennsylvania, the Wolf administration has proposed an Energy Communities Trust Fund to support communities impacted by power plant closures. In its first year, REGI could raise around $300 million for the state. The Pennsylvania Game Commission is investigating dozens of reports of dead or dying songbirds from all over the state. The animals apparently died of a still unidentified illness whose most common symptoms include discharge and crusting around the eye, swollen eyes, and neurologic signs like stumbling and head tremors. Twelve species of common backyard birds have been recorded with the condition, which has been reported in 27 Pennsylvania counties. The public is being asked to remove feeders where wild birds congregate and avoid handling dead or injured birds. Researchers are forecasting that the Chesapeake Bay will have a smaller than average dead zone this year. These areas of little to no oxygen are caused by excessive nutrient pollution. This year's dead zone will be smaller due to reduced river flows from the dry spring, as well as less nutrient and sediment pollution. Forecasters are also predicting that the lack of spring rainfall will result in a smaller algal bloom in Lake Erie. Agricultural runoff is one of the main sources of the nutrients that can cause algal blooms and the resulting dead zones. Legislation to update standards for fertilizer application to protect water quality passed the Senate this spring. For Pennsylvania Legacies, I'm Lily Jones.
Last year, the U.S. imported $8 billion worth of solar panels to feed the growing demand for renewable energy. And as state and federal governments increasingly pursue more ambitious climate goals, that number is expected to keep climbing. Well, along with just about everything else we consume, the vast majority of those imported panels and really most other solar components these days are coming from China. The companies that produce those goods get their raw materials from just a handful of suppliers. And those suppliers are associated with specific places. One of those places is Xinjiang in northwestern China. And if the name is familiar, it's because it's been in the headlines a lot as the site of alleged human rights abuses targeting the region's ethnic minority Uyghur population. Citing reports of forced labor in Xinjiang, the Biden administration last month banned import of products made with materials from one prominent supplier, the world's largest producer of metallurgical silicon, and went on to hint that similar action could be taken against others. What does all this mean for the industry? Well, for one, it's another signal that solar businesses and their investors increasingly need to consider supply chain transparency. And to that end, the Solar Energy Industries Association, SIA, has created a traceability protocol that enables companies to prove their goods are ethically and sustainably sourced. John Smirno is General Counsel and VP for Market Strategy at SIA, and he's our guest on this episode. Uh, just a note, we recorded this interview back in May. That was before this most recent set of trade policies was announced, although SIA says it supports those actions. Here's my conversation with John Smirno of the Solar Energy Industries Association. John, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Great to have you here. Thank you. Good morning. A little background first on solar manufacturing would be helpful, I think. Uh, starting with you know the materials. What materials are we working with? What parts of the world do they come from? Talk about how those are those materials are produced and sourced. There are two main technologies in solar. One is based on a polysilicon-based crystalline silicon technology, and the other is um, what's called a thin film technology. The crystalline silicon represents about 90% of global production and about 90% of what's sold in the U.S. Um, so most products are crystalline silicon. Thin film uh, is actually, there's one company, a U.S. headquartered company called First Solar that leads the development of um, thin film, and you know they're one of the, the top ten modern producers in, in the world. Uh, but if we're talking about the other ninety percent, the crystal, crystalline technology, it's a really broad supply chain, starting with um, the very beginning quartzite, which is a, a high silicon-based quartz product that's mined, um, and then that is used to produce silicon metal which then is used to produce polysilicon. And then um, from polysilicon, we, uh, we get solar wafers, which is a, a thin um, circular handheld uh, piece of polysilicon that becomes the basis of a solar cell. And then you, once you make the necessary manufacturing processes to the wafer, you get a cell. And then you take a, a collection of cells, maybe Oh, anywhere from 60 to 72 for, for basic products. And, and you put those together uh, in, into a solar panel. So you take the cells and you sandwich them between uh, some plastics and you put glass on the front, you put aluminum frame, a junction box on the back that controls the movement of the electricity. And that's the solar module or solar panel. In the industry, we refer to both modules and panels synonymously. 
that's the value chain for producing that product. Uh, and then in addition to that, in the industry, you have racking, um, trackers. These are products that support solar panels, whether they're on a rooftop or whether they're standalone in a big solar power station. Um, trackers adjust the solar panels so they move with the sun, so you collect more energy that way. Uh, and then th the next big component is, is called an inverter, and that is um, the power conditioning device. It uh, converts direct current, which is what solar panels produce, into alternating current, which is what type of electricity that feeds into the grid. Um, and then you have a, a whole host of balance of system components. You have harnesses, cables, connector boxes, a lot of the basic um, electrical um, ancillary um, equipment. And so that really is the overall uh, solar supply chain. And then you know, we also focus on energy storage. And increasingly we're seeing solar projects, whether they're for a home or for a big utility power station, being paired with, um, with an energy storage device. In most instances, that's going to be a lithium-ion um, battery setup. Yeah, where does, where does lithium come from? Where do you source that? Lithium all over the world. You know, we have lithium production in the United States, um, down in South America, lithium production up in Canada. Um, so yeah, the lithium's pretty um, broadly dispersed. To, to your, your question about like where do all these products come from, um, silicon metal is produced around the world. You know, we produce that in the US and Brazil and um, China, Europe, um, lots of silicon metal production. That's products mainly used to produce aluminum. And so solar is a, a relatively small part of global silicon metal production. It's a, actually a massive industry and we're, we're a relatively small part of that. Um, the other um, key element in, in producing crystalline silicon technology, polysilicon, also produced around the world. The majority of that is produced in China. Um, and you know, as we get to a bit later, um, a significant portion of China's polysilicon production is in Xinjiang, which is uh, um, the Uyghur autonomous region. And uh, that's where we're seeing a lot of um, human rights concerns uh, in that region. And then um, the wafer um, part of the supply chain, most wafers, 95% of wafers are produced in China. And then uh, as you look to cell and module production, um, for what comes into the US market, uh, those cells and modules are produced in um, mainly in Southeast Asia, but India as well, um, Korea, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam. We have some uh, module assembly capacity in the U.S., but a lot of gaps in the U.S. supply chain, and you know we're working hard to try to start filling in some of those manu U.S. manufacturing gaps. Can you give me a sense of about how many people globally uh, are, are employed in this industry? And I'm not, not the manufacturing itself or installation or any other part of it, but just rounding up the materials and feeding the supply chain about how many people is, uh, you know, are employed in that industry and what yeah. kind of working conditions in different parts of the world. You mentioned Xinjiang, but broadly speaking, what are those jobs like? Yeah, I mean, um, millions are employed in, in the you know, 
the solar um, storage industry globally. In the U.S., 250,000 um, folks are employed uh, more than full time, greater than 50% of their time. That's how we define it. Um, so yeah, lots of um, lots of solar workers around the world. Um, the leading module suppliers are, you know, Class A globally recognized facilities. Um, you know, so at least in the solar industry until recently, no uh, no concerns about you know labor conditions, work working conditions. Um, you know, generally recognized as a, a an industry that has pretty pretty good. Um, working conditions globally. With notable exceptions, though, and that's what we're here to talk about. Um, so tell me about what do we know about the way materials are being produced in Xinjiang and maybe other parts of the world that are of concern? You know, outside of Xinjiang, uh, again, most of the leading suppliers have good um, corporate social responsibility codes of conduct. Um, you know, they have good sustainability programs. Um, whether, you know, that's in China or, you know, outside of the region. Um, so I think that's the, probably the, the standard is, is most of the leading module suppliers have pretty good corporate social responsibility um, commitments, plans in, pro, in place. Um, in Xinjiang, we, we just have no visibility into uh, what's going on in that region because, you know, we don't travel that region. I have no incentive to go to the region. Um, we just see all of the um, reports and concerns about forced labor practices there. There's plenty of information that shows that there are serious concerns with respect to forced labor, human rights issues in Xinjiang. And based on that alone, uh, and the inability to, for independent third-party auditors to conduct uh, social responsibility audits in that region, we just think that the solar industry really shouldn't be operating in that region. Uh, and that's why, um, Last fall, we began calling on the industry to to move the, the solar supply chain out of out of Xinjiang, which effectively means um, stop buying polysilicon from from that region, because that there aren't many other uh, solar components produced in the region. It's really um, polysilicon and silica metal, but most of the silica metal is feeding is produced in that region is feeding the those uh, those plants. So we're not looking to investigate or um, you know, try to verify or in any way, we're just saying there are systemic issues there that need to be addressed. Um, until those are addressed, we, we, we don't want anything to do with that region. So yeah, simplest solution probably for the time being. What has the response been to that call that you put out? It's been um, across the board positive. You know, we've gotten some negative feedback from the um, Chinese polysilicon manufacturers, their trade association was highly critical. Um, the Chinese government has been highly critical, uh, but you know that they're 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 taking that position um, with the region in general. So there's nothing unique about um, what they're saying with respect to solar, other than you know they're not happy that we're raising concerns about um, human rights issues in in Xinjiang. Um, and you know for us, it's 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 you know just about hey, if you, know, if, if you want to um, correct that, then you know, have independent third-party audits. If you want to be able, polysilicon plant in the region wants to be able to show that they have no forced labor, then let in um, independent third-party audits to verify that. Until such time as you're able to do that, our customers just view that region as high risk and 
it's all about risk risk mitigation, certainly human rights too, but from a commercial perspective, risk mitigation is an essential element. And this is where the traceability protocol comes in. If you know a, a company is saying, "All right, we're pulling out of Xinjiang, we're getting our materials elsewhere," how do they, you know, reassure themselves and their customers and the broader community, uh, you know, that these materials are clean, they're sustainably and ethically sourced? How does the protocol actually work? Yeah. So we um, just, you know, some history. The uh, in this last summer, the State Department issued a report, an advisory, a business advisory with respect to Xinjiang, raising concerns about doing doing business in the region. And then later in the summer, um, Amy Lair, who was director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, um, in talking about Xinjiang forced labor issues generally, recognized that there was a lot of solar. Um, there was a solar supply chain in the region. And then shortly after that, the um, U.S. House of Representatives passed by, I think the vote was 406 to 3, uh, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which um, effectively, and we think that eventually that, that act will become law, it creates a, a rebuttable presumption that if you're importing a product into the United States, either directly from um, Xinjiang or produced in the region or an input is produced in the region. For example, you know, to our example, polysilicon uh, produced in the region. This rebuttable presumption assumes that the input was made with forced labor. And that puts the burden on the importer to establish otherwise, to say, no, okay, my polysilicon came from that region, but we didn't use forced labor. Um, the, the challenge or, or the, the problem is that to rebut that presumption, U.S. Customs will require an independent third-party audit. Now, if you can't get an independent third-party audit, it's going to be impossible to, to, to rebut that presumption. Um, and so, you know, we then said, look, we, we just got to get out of the region and started calling on it, the industry to make moves. But we didn't think that that was enough to just say, you know, move out of the region. We felt like the industry had a leadership opportunity um, really requirement to to be proactive in preventing uh, force in forced labor prevention so we put together a um, forced labor prevention pledge um, we got about 300 signatories that to that those companies represent the majority of suppliers and purchasers of solar products in the u.s and the pledge really is, is about companies raising their hand and saying we're opposed to forced labor. We don't want forced labor in the solar supply chain. And uh, we support um, proactive steps to, to prevent forced labor. And we support the you know, CIA developing a tool for the industry to provide the necessary transparency. Um, and then that tool is, as you referred to, is the traceability protocol. Um, over the course of six months or so, we worked with a group of, of companies, some of the leading module manufacturers, leading purchasers of modules, as well as two um, solar supply chain audit companies to develop the traceability protocol. And the protocol really is all about transparency. It's about um, tracking um, the provenance of all the key inputs in the manufacture of a solar panel. So for example, if you import a module into the US, most modules have a serial number taking that serial number and then tracing uh, to where the polysilicon used to make the wafers and the cells in that module, 
where was that polysilicon manufactured? What was the factory name? Um, on what date was it manufactured? What was the batch number? Which furnace did it come out of? Uh, and then tracking all that data across the, the module value chain. You know, then knowing where the ingots and wafers were manufactured, knowing where the saw was manufactured. So really um, providing transparency. And, and the hope is that uh, a company who does that and reveals that information, there are no inputs from Xinjiang. If there are, then a customer decides, do I want uh, a module with imports from Xinjiang, inputs from Xinjiang or, or not? And every customer I know of doesn't want that. Um, we also anticipate that U.S. Customs and Border Protection could take enforcement action relatively soon regarding inputs that have uh, polysilicon from that region. Uh, existing U.S. law, so this isn't even the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, but if customs has a reasonable basis to believe that there's forced labor tied to a product being imported into the U.S., it can detain the merchandise and, again, put that presumption back on the importer to say, no, um, either my goods, there are no inputs from Xinjiang, and I can show you that, or there were inputs, but there was no forced labor, and they won't be able to show that because of the absence of a, an independent third-party audit. Uh, so that was that document, um, and it's it's about uh, having a, an overlay uh, on your information technology systems, management processes, procedures, uh, having an audit mechanism. So you put a traceability protocol in place, and then having an independent auditor verify um, your conformance with the, with the protocol. Uh, and that's all about um, providing both customs and the purchasers assurances that it's credible data. So the data that you're providing that says, you know, I know it, the polysilicon came from this factory on this date, that's credible. If you have an independent auditor come in, verify the processes and procedures for that, um, you know, that helps support the credibility of that data. So by opting to participate in the protocol, like you potentially as a manufacturer, avoid a whole lot of red tape and, and trouble just to get the materials into the country. Yeah, exactly. It's a, yeah, at, at its heart, it's an import compliance tool. Okay. So that's a very practical, like really understandable reason why manufacturers would want to take the pledge and, and uh, use the protocol. What else is going on there in terms of the, the demand for something like this? I mean, you mentioned that there is a, a an ethical culture, I guess, within the industry where people want to lead, want to do the right thing. How much of that, I'm wondering, is coming from like from the demand side? Is it is it consumers saying, this is a problem, we want you to take it seriously? I You know, I think the um, the global manufacturers recognize the importance of good corporate social responsibility principles you know i think if, if you look at most of the major companies they do have a good corporate social responsibility platform in place um, but what's what the consumers are driving is transparency they want visibility into the production of the goods they're purchasing and whether that has to do with forced labor, they want to know that, you know, I, I want to know that there's nothing coming from Xinjiang because that's a you know, high risk and the kinds of reports of forced labor concerns there. Um, you know, it could also be um, transparency, knowing where goods come from in the environmental context. Like, you know, I think we're increasingly starting to see customers that want to know um, 
what the um, carbon footprint is of, of the solar panel. Every solar panel is going to have a fantastic carbon footprint relative to um, traditional forms of energy generation. But you could have one panel where uh, all the electricity used to produce the silica metal, the polysilicon was generated from a coal factory um, versus one where the polysilicon is manufactured from hydroelectricity. And because polysilicon uses so, so much electricity, the type of electricity then influences the carbon footprint of the solar panel itself. And consumers increasingly want to see um, decreases in the carbon footprint of solar panels. And so um, transparency, traceability of where the inputs came from, how the inputs were produced is something that consumers are increasingly demanding. In addition, certainly to assurances that their products they're purchasing don't are made um, with forced labor. Considering that so much of what we consume in this country comes from China, and we're talking about solar-specific technologies and materials here, but a lot of what we're talking about also uh, pertains to other industries and other types of products. Is there some other protocol that applies to other industries, other fields that served as a model or an inspiration for this? Could you compare this to uh, other similar mechanisms that might be out there? So we, the, a couple of things we've seen, like the OECD has a conflicts mineral um, supply chain document, tracing document. You know, we look to, look to that. Um, there are, are tracing um, protocol uh, you see in the cocoa industry. There's, a lot of, there's been a lot of child labor in the cocoa industry. It's another area where we found some pretty good examples of company-specific traceability um, elements. So, yeah, we did, we did look to, to those two industries, conflict minerals and cocoa, um, for some guidance and putting, putting our, um, our protocol together. And on the enforceability question, you said third-party audit is kind of what it all hinges on. Who does that work and what does it look like? It's more of, I, I, it's, I wouldn't say it's enforceability. I would say it's more conformance um, because customs is really the one, you know, that would enforce. Um, we're just, you know, giving companies the, to be as well positioned as they, as they could be and able to, to respond to customs requests for assurances or um, customers as well wanting, wanting to know. Um, so I, I think that's an important point, uh, but we do think that transparency, a key element of transparency is due diligence and key element of due diligence is auditing, independent third party audits. So in the solar industry, there are, um, you know, I think we'll see doing some of these audits, some of the traditional social responsibility auditors, um, you know, that do corporate social responsibility code of conduct audits. I think we'll see some of those entities doing traceability um, we worked with, with two organizations, one called STS and the other CEA, that are, um, their traditional role is doing a quality assurance audit for the solar industry. And so they would be hired by a big investor company, you know, let's say they're putting $100 million into buying uh, solar equipment for a specific project. That equipment's going to have to be in the field for 20, 25 years. Those investors want to know that they're buying a quality product. So they'll hire one of these quality assurance auditors to go in to the purchase, to the manu module manufacturer's facility, um, pull a module off the line, you know, break it down, look at the quality of construction, 
look at the bill of materials, the quality of the inputs, they'll take a look at some of the suppliers. Um, so they're very well positioned to know solar manufacturing around the world, not, not just in China. Um, and they, they, with the benefit of that expertise, they helped us develop the protocol. Um, and I understand both of those companies are, um, have been hired to start doing some of these, uh, some of these audits. Shifting gears a little bit uh, and, and looking at the solar industry more broadly, but to whatever extent you, you're able to situate it within a Pennsylvania context, what is the state of Pennsylvania's solar industry at the moment? How does it compare with our neighbors, our competitor states, and what is the potential? Where does solar go from here in, in Pennsylvania? Yeah, so um, I, I see Pennsylvania being um, on a growth trajectory. Um, you know, we're seeing commitments both um, – you know, the state legislature, you know, increasing the focus on the positive aspects of solar. Um, we're starting to get outreach from companies that um, are looking to uh, either invest in, in, um, in Pennsylvania or, or expand their businesses in, in Pennsylvania. So I, I think the, the future of solar in Pennsylvania is, is, is very bright. Um, Pennsylvania, is, as you know, is also, you know, traditionally recognized as a manufacturing state. And um, we fully expect there to be significant manufacturing opportunities as this industry grows. And we are really focused on um, how do we, both at, at the federal level and the state level, how do we in- recruit, encourage private sector investment um, and build the solar supply chain robustly here in the U.S. Um, for the last decade, uh, China in particular has has invested in growing a, a solar supply chain, and then they now have a very robust um, solar supply chain. We'd like to see that in the U.S., and it's going to take a, a you know commitment of long-term federal investments. Um, you know, states are expert at economic development. I don't think states need to do anything differently for solar to recruit investments. Um, from what they do to recruit other manufacturers, so all those economic development resources already in place uh, at the state level. Um, We have a a staff member on our team who um, is assigned to Pennsylvania. Um, So we we see that as as a priority state and dedicated resources uh, to grow solar, both from an installation services side, but also um, try to grow solar manufacturing in the state as well. Are there other bottlenecks or obstacles that are preventing for the moment all this potential from from being realized? It's not just supply chain. It's not just necessarily public investment in these resources, but are there like regulatory or legal things that still need to be resolved? I mean, as we we're we're becoming a big industry and, you know, you become a big industry, there are growth pains of, you know, a variety of regulatory issues, both at the state level and, um, at the federal level. If you think of solar, there are 50 different state solar programs. Um, so as an industry, you know, as we grow up and, um, you know, that's, that's just going to be a constant challenge. Um, you know, the, on the supply chain side, we are seeing cost increases. I, you know, I see that, you know, everybody sees that uh, beef prices and gas prices and, you know, you go to Home Depot and you have to pay three times uh, what you would have paid six months ago for that you know, that um, piece of lumber. Um, so those systemic um, price increases, I think across manufacturing, we're also seeing seeing that in the solar industry. 
Um, but in time, you know, that'll all settle down and, um, you know, we'll get back on, on track. And hopefully, you know, this is, is another opportunity to realize the importance of having uh, some domestic production, diversifying your, your supply base to, to include uh, production here, here in the United States. Uh, and then at the federal level, we work at, um, at FERC, and we have a team dedicated to that. Now, there are always regulatory issues, Department of Energy, Treasury, Interior, Trade. Uh, trade's a constant uh, issue in the industry and hinders growth, uh, something that you know, we're encouraging that the government really pivot away from focusing on trade to incentivize manufacturing and focus instead on long-term federal investments. Some of the, the high-level uh, barriers that we're, we're working on. John, it's been great talking with you. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Josh. Have a great afternoon. Well, if you'd like to know more about the Solar Energy Industries Association traceability protocol for the solar supply chain, you can find that information via our website, pecpa.org. We'll link to all the relevant materials, as we always do. On the website, you can also catch up on all of PEC's energy and climate work, as well as our programs related to watershed health, outdoor recreation, conservation-based community economic development, and lots more. Again, we're at pecpa.org. And that's all for now. Hope you can join us for the next podcast coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>